Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to U2Y. This is Chapter 6, The Joshua Tree, U2's fifth studio album. The Joshua Tree began its life with a working title of The Two Americas, dealing with the idea of a mythic America and a real America, and was somewhat based around the old world meeting the new world, and two civilizations clashing perhaps. This episode's been quite tricky because this record was huge. It broke U2 into charts in the UK, in the US, won them Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards. It became a cultural touchstone, and some may say an instant classic. It captured a certain zeitgeist of its time, and yet bringing it back in 2017 for the 30th anniversary tour proved that 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 cultural touchstone still bore a lot of resonance and as such this record has been analyzed probably more than any other both the music and the visuals we do base our conversation around the art direction and design as per previous episodes but i was struck by how what made this process different was the personal stories of the people who went on this trip And I was drawn back to a conversation that I facilitated in 2017 between my father Steve and former U2 assistant Mark Coleman, although he was much more than an assistant, and they reminisced about their time in the desert in 1986, and I just found their personal touch and personal take on this time to be deeply fascinating. So I'm actually going to include that next week as a follow-on from this episode. But in the meantime, this is Steve and I talking the Joshua Tree. So, the Joshua Tree, what is there to say about this record that hasn't already been said? 
<laughs> well, it's probably the most talked about um, of the U2 uh, projects that we worked on that's been analysed in so many ways. I've done so many interviews through the years about it. Um, uh, I did that interview with uh, Dave Fanning, and I think there was a couple of things that were quite interesting. That uh, The quote that from the desert springs everything. Um, and I think that was probably creatively um what happened the desert created this thing in our minds and it became uh the joshua tree even you know and and uh, uh expression of that experience you're referring there to a kind of a zine that came out in 2017 called from desert springs everything which was kind of a a yeah a zine about the construction of the joshua tree album yeah so i think the way into this question of what hasn't been analyzed before probably is more so based around the personal experience of you all going over to the States, going on that trip. It's I think the cover and and its themes and the music and their themes have been so analysed over time that it's probably the more personal stories that are lesser told. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of anecdotes. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I suppose um, there was things like... Uh, going to a uh, vintage shop in uh, L.A. when we got back and uh, Edge seeing this little tiny leather jacket in the window of a of a of this vintage shop and going in to try and buy it off the proprietor who didn't want to sell it but he ended up buying it it was like a, ti- a, a little tiny kids version of a of a uh, James Dean wild you know mm-hmm. a jacket um, there was a lot of uh, we also went into a Western store and, and, and you know, Bono was trying on cowboy boots. It's, it, there's a lot of small off-beam things like that. I think the point that lies within that is that you were all absorbing little pieces of culture and your surroundings and your environments that all fed back into the, into the sum of the parts of that trip. Yeah. That it's not just about the shoot. It's about everything else that surrounds it. And, you know, you mentioned Bono going in and getting his Western wear, like there's footage of, of Bono getting his hat brimmed and getting boots in the Outside It's America documentary. And what it kind of does for me is it just serves to really galvanize how much that America was having on the band at that time and then them personally right the way down to embracing the, the fashion um, and the aesthetic. Yes. Plus, um, for me personally, um uh, I found two fantastic locations, which were, uh, I don't, obviously, as you know, I don't drive. So I walked everywhere, which is not the thing that happens in Los Angeles at all. Um, so uh, up at the top of where, where we were stayed in the Sunset Marquee, there is, the street runs up the hill. And then you have, on one side of the road, you have Tower Records, yeah. which at that point was in full swing. It was a fantastic shop that um, was about, you know, records, CDs, vinyl, books, magazines, great things. And across the road, there was a place called uh, Book Soup, I think it was called. Um, and that was, again, full of fascinating books on design and Americana and all sorts of things. I could have brought home a, tr- a trunk full of uh, reference points and things like that, but I just picked up a few things in it. So for me, it was that cultural experience of walking down Melrose in in, 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 in and seeing these different art shops. There was a shop one specific shop that really stood in my mind, which was um, a shop that was dealt with Day of the Dead. The whole shop was just full of candles and images and statues and things like that. Again, fascinating uh, influence. I think as well, coming from Dublin and Ireland at the time, that Ireland would have been a very monocultured place, I suppose. And 
whether you're walking down the Sunset Strip or through is a risky point that those places are so full of culture and history and I'm sure it was very overwhelming and inspiring. Yes, indeed. And and also you, you just realise, as I think I said about the travelling between the different locations for the shoot, you actually stand on up on where Tower Records is and look down Melrose. And, you know, you don't realise it's probably five, six miles long, this this this, this straight block, you know. And, uh, you know, because I walk everywhere, I walked it. I just simply, and, and you come across little shops and little places that you didn't see before, you know, and, and architecture. So it is, it is, it is eye-opening to actually walk these, these places rather than and I always did it everywhere I went on any shoot we did in Morocco or anywhere I get out in the morning before we or between shoots and go out and actually look at the places we were we were in one of the other things I take away from the whole trip was I formed a bond with Mark Coleman who had been given the task he was working with the U2 organization and with Bono in, in particular and Mark had been given the task of being the tour manager for this particular trip um so I uh, realized, you know, there was times when he needed some help with various things. So I took on that role because when we weren't actually, when I wasn't intensely focused on the shooting, uh, there was other things that had to be done, making sure they were we were checking into hotels or motels or wherever we decided to stay, that everybody was, you know, going to be up at a certain time in the morning to get to get going. Well, I feel like then maybe the thing that's unique to our our conversation is those personal stories. They're the things that haven't necessarily been told before. But yeah, going back to, to Mark, Mark's a very thoughtful character. I always enjoy his presence and, and having conversations with him. But I think that that also, if we zoom out for a moment and think about the idea of, the, you know, the relationship aspect of, of what we're doing here, it's that everyone in that entourage was really meant to be there. Everyone was kind of offering something and there was no real hierarchy. I mean, I and I think that was really fundamentally important to the to that that voyage yeah it was it was we we stayed in i mean it was all throughout the entire trip we ate in the same places we 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 traveled on the same buses we 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 uh whatever accommodation we were going to get it wasn't like oh here's the special rooms for the bands and here's here's the rest of you guys we all mucked in on every level yeah people might know you more so nowadays for your your love of americana and all things cowboy um were you were you a cowboy in 1986? No, not at all. <laughs> I was um, heavily uh, coming off my hardcore electronic dance music uh, phase, um, which is pre kind of uh, hip hop and 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 other aspects. So the people that I was listening to were bands like Front Two Four Two and and Nine Inch Nails and, and and people like that. It was that kind of what they called uh, electronic body music as opposed to electronic dance music um so it was that was they were the things that i was going to the record stores looking for on the trip over there um do you think there was any kind of influence from that visually speaking or aesthetically speaking was there anything no i think that i was as still very rooted in in the america i grew up watching cowboy films i i had uh, worn Western shirts for a long time, but my my influence is on on uh, Americana was not country music. The people that I knew that wore cowboy boots or wore cowboy shirts were people like Led Zeppelin. They weren't. They weren't. I wasn't listening to the Buck Owenses and people of, of of that world at that particular point. I knew who they were. Uh, I had been a fan of the Birds and Sweethearts of the Rodeo and the Frying Breeder Brothers, but my musical taste had shifted away towards uh, something quite quite different. So it was the actual integral uh, landscape of of where we were that was an influence and that definitely ha- was um, 
an Americana influence by the places that we visited, like the town of Bodie um, was pure Americana. You know, there's old cars, old petrol pumps, hotels that were abandoned. That, you know, you couldn't wish for a better place to sort of ignite your passion for Americana. Yeah, I guess if the if 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 the musical side wasn't quite there yet, though, I think even if you're just a fan of design and and history, which we've we've established that you you, you know you are, that being in a place like that is so full of different elements of of design and and um, history that those two things two things combine, and I'm sure you felt a little bit like a for want of a better term, a kid in a candy store. Yeah, it was it was um, visually enlightening and just a, a panorama of of vistas that were uh, you know your brain was taking them all in at the same time, and you were obviously incorporating the, these vistas into your design ethics. So before you begin your voyage to the desert from little old Dublin, I, I, I'm guessing you're hearing some music ahead of time there would be evenings when we would go down to the studio and they would kind of be rehearsing just sitting around in in rehearsal room and you would hear the songs in what were their most basic forms at that stage and they often didn't have a complete song by any means or even complete lyrics the lyrics were generally speaking almost the last thing to arrive so you got a feel for what was going on but rather than the actual physical music and listening to it it's the uh, inherent spirit of the band that you're trying to draw upon and the soul of the band so that whole um, number of days was specifically about uh, trying to find the soul of this record um, in its photography, in its location, in its atmosphere. Okay, so a simple question for you. Why the desert? Um, why the desert? Well, I suppose um, it was part of uh, Anton's pre-shoot uh, uh, exploration of uh, locations um, and the locations he'd chosen. I mean, he could have chosen an entirely different set of locations for us to visit. Uh, he, so- he had the two Americas in mind, though, at this point. He, the two Americas was established as a working title before he went on his record. Yes, and obviously uh, the idea of a ghost town, which was, he did, I know he visited quite a number of locations uh, to find somewhere that he really felt uh, he, the feeling for him as much as anybody else on the trip. Uh, and Bodhi fitted that bill a lot of the other ghost towns that he that he kind of uh, had heard about, he I think he'd he'd gone out with a location scout uh, beforehand who took him to various places because, as you know, in the industry they have people who kind of compile books of locations or possible yeah. locations that you can use, um, and a lot of the ghost towns were really just. Um, and in fact, it throws back to Unforgettable Fire. A lot of the castles we visited in the Unforgettable Fire were totally unsuitable. They were like next to a barnyard or there was cattle in them or there was stored with hay and things like that. There was a lot of locations he visited that weren't suitable for, for the kind of um, imagery that we were trying to achieve. So you had to find the right locations. But those locations were, given a tight shooting schedule, were set fairly fairly strongly in in his mind this is where we were going today to to shoot that thing so i i had no choice in the actual um desert location but i loved it well it's worth mentioning then at this point that anton corbin had been to joshua tree national park before in fact six years previous in 1980 when he was photographing captain beefart yes he'd photographed in, in in the joshua tree national park and it's really fascinating to look back at those images from 1980 of Captain Beefheart, because because the first thing is seeing Captain Beefheart, um, aka Don Van Vliet, is that he looks like at home in the desert, like he is being photographed in his place. Yes. Whereas you two is being photographed as wayfaring strangers in a new land and discovering this place. And the other thing then is obviously this 
place was you know was was a powerful place for Anton to want to go back there. Yes. But what I find really interesting is that when you look at those images, the first thing I notice is that in nearly every one there is a cluster of Joshua trees featured in the background and for the occasional shot where it appears as though there's only one tree it seems as though he's kind of framed the other trees out which brings me back to Joshua tree because of the the unique side of finding that singular tree out by itself which is somewhat rare yes which led to this literal stop the bus moment. Yeah, that's why you know he, he was quite excited on the on the coach when he spotted it and 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 asked us to stop. I mean that was obviously fortuitous and and it just um, again emphasizes Anton's visual sense that he was able to spot this tree in the distance and and kind of draw everybody into it. Another observation then is that beef, the beef art shots are a single person with a backdrop of a cluster of trees whereas Joshua Tree is a cluster of people with a single tree as the backdrop. Yeah but I think equally if we hadn't come across or Anton hadn't spotted that tree we would have gone to the Joshua Tree National Park and having visited there myself uh, some years later I think you would find there are um, trees that are sort of slightly more isolated on the edges of these things I think we would have got a a fantastic shoot with the strength of what Anton does anyway Um, it wouldn't have been maybe quite as iconic as, as the tree that we found. But I think we would have got some very, very strong shots because there's such a primitive sense of, of, of what the tree is and what it means. Well, I guess to put it in a simple term, you weren't out there looking for a single tree. You just happened to find one. And that was very special. Yeah, yeah. And I think you also raise another point that that landscape just has so much to offer. And we even found this when we discovered that roll of film of yours, which you had shot yourself whilst out there on that shoot. You shot on a little small compact um, Olympus XA camera. And those photographs that you took, obviously different kind of photograph to, to Anton's photographs, but they still have some of the same energy that's present in in Anton shots and just that time and that place. It's just, it exudes so much energy and spirituality and an enigma that it just kind of it it is so inherently present you can't not capture it I just wanted to draw attention to something for a moment which is the fact that on the last record sleeve for the unforgettable fire of course as we learned in the last chapter that you were brought in at the 11th hour to rescue the band and paul and the sleeve and created something in itself memorable so i'm i I guess i'm just i'm presuming that that just really further galvanized your relationship with them and their their faith and belief in you and that for this record you were going to be given for want of a better term, first refusal. And that the chemistry between yourself, the four members of the band, and Paul and Anton was undeniable. Paul's um, calling me aside and getting me to work on that cover. I suppose we affirmed the relationship um, in a stronger way. So I don't recall there being any questions when we got to the Joshua Tree about, you know, I don't think they would have invited me 
to go on on that particular trip if we weren't working solidly towards the same end end of things you know i have to point at this point how how um fundamentally important paul was to the process he wasn't a person who was making decisions about what the design was he was just making decisions on, on about how what he wanted to happen for the band for me so that we actually got the work that we we wanted through through that process and he did that right up till he retired in the boy episode you talk about seeing that image of peter rowan the boy who would become the boy on the boy cover mm-hmm. and it immediately resonating with you and I just wonder about your experience of seeing the contact sheets and early prints from your trip to the desert. Was was the image that ultimately became the cover always a front runner? Did it kind of stick out to you in that early stage? Uh, I think so. I think I, if the contact sheets, um, I'm not sure whether they, where they are now, but you would find my um, China Graph pencil going in very quickly to highlighting certain shots that I felt worked. And um, visually, I just thought as a cover, the shot with them on, on the left was more powerful than if I'd taken the the inside cover and put the inside cover on the on the front. The focus is much more uh, a combination of the people and the landscape together, whereas uh, with the tree, it's essentially the, the band who are the focus of the picture. So obviously the widescreen cinematic anamorphic aesthetic is built into this whole project. But did those images come cropped from Anton or did you crop that in your design process? Uh, thinking back, I probably cropped it a little bit to, to make it fit the aesthetic. But I know that Anton had shot some shots where he did get in tight and with the band and he did crop them to, to a little way. So uh, I think the overall aesthetic of that was on the contact sheets, but I would have gone in probably and just made, you know, to fit yeah. it into that exact shape that I wanted. I would have made slight crops to bring it into it. Because it feels like in some ways, and you see this on the early uh, mock-ups, that the way that that cover image is, image is shot, that it feels like it was almost intended to be a gatefold image that perhaps would wrap around either side becoming the, the cover and say it's the four guys on the on the cover and then the landscape on the on the in, inner side or if it's just a whole gatefold image. Like it's, it seems like it's shot, it's certainly shot with the width in mind. You know, it's definitely, it's, it's cinematic resting place, if you will, is, was definitely intentional. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and as you know, Anton shot a certain number of the images on, 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 a, on a wide looks camera, which yeah. automatically gave you that, that wide landscape uh, 360 yeah. almost effect. Uh, and, you know, but that, that was a tricky way of shooting because you couldn't uh, maintain focus very, very well. You had to sort of yeah. see what you got from the picture. Yeah, there's a softness in some of the shots that I think is, is an inherent quality of that camera. Yeah, I know. It also the the it 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 made the horizon curved. Yeah, it, you didn't get a straight horizon with yeah. it, so it was kind of interesting in that sense. Well, the image, the, the cover image, has such an interesting quality because uh, you know the whole the whole sleeve in itself is built around negative space. You have the negative space with the cinematic black borders, but you also have negative space within the image itself, where the band is framed heavily on the left. And then the landscape takes over the right. Yeah, and I think that I, from memory, the 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 experimentations with the other aspects of trying it as a an ECM type sleeve with with the landscape on one side and the band on the other. Um, I think we quickly moved through those that they weren't there was something that dissipated in the energy of the cover by doing that. So I think they were just sort of initial ideas, but we quickly honed in on the idea of what we were trying to do with the the black space with the, with the, with the, the way that's cropped top and bottom 
in that way. So, you know, that became very much a part of the overall look and feel. So you mentioned ECM Records, which stood for Edition of Contemporary Music. They were a record label formed in Munich in the late 60s and mostly released jazz records that kind of dipped into experimental, sometimes classical, sometimes world. But I was reading up about them and their motto at the time was the most beautiful sound next to silence, which I think is really beautiful and yep. also very kind of relevant to this idea of minimalism that we're we're tapping into here. I, but I think you can see that influence creeping into Unforgettable Fire as well. But on Joshua Tree, yes, definitely. I think in the early mock-ups, I can certainly see your thought process about keeping a landscape only on the cover. And also there's one record that came out in 1976, Terj Ripdal or Ripdal has a record called After the Rain. And if you if you take a glance at that, you can really feel the DNA of Joshua Tree in there. So so even going back to this idea of utilitarianism, which is present in the name, it almost feels like an experiment in having an in-house U2 design style to a degree. Yeah. And we can kind of see that again with the Greatest Hits compilations. But ultimately, the landscape approach didn't, didn't work out. Yeah, a lot of their sleeves had a distinct look in the same way that Blue Notes records have a distinctive typography and look. And the ECM are often based around a landscape picture, an abstract land, landscape picture, which which allows the, the person looking at it to, to draw themselves in. But I don't, to be honest, I don't think the landscape idea um, stayed large in the in the uh, idea of where the cover would go very long it was just done as a kind of um, this is what it could possibly look like and that's obviously done post because we were using um, a photograph um, a basis of the photograph that was basically the picture that was on the front cover of the other tree as it is was basically cut in half and and the landscape was on the front cover and the band were on the back cover so just saying on the photographic element w- one thing I find really interesting about the power of this image on the sleeve is is how deep the the level of focus is as in it's almost focused to infinity so you have the the foreground subjects the four guys in the band in sharp focus and you also have the landscape kind of sharing the foreground even though it's very much a part of the background and this is particularly interesting because anton is a photographer who quite often plays with focus and might even have like like a a, a foreground subject out of focus with his background in focus there's, there's, a, there's an interesting power to that image because because the landscape is given front row you know front row billing alongside the band like the landscape is the fifth member of the band it, it, it it's an interesting aspect which makes you think about what you're seeing because um what we were trying to achieve i think both anton and myself um was the 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 a combination of the human architecture and the physical architecture or landscape i should say um th- that the two were prominent uh, you can see the band very very clearly and you can see the landscape behind them very very clearly and there is a, sen- a sense of almost alienation about that landscape is very lunar it's kind of really weird place yeah. uh, to have and yet they have that strength of they're dressed in a certain way that's almost uh, from the 1890s or whatever it looks you know pioneers standing in a landscape that that's yeah. and they were in a sense musically pioneering the, in their way through what they were yeah. trying to do as well yeah, there's an aspect of it that feels, we may have discussed this already, but it is an aspect of it that feels like it's both, it's a mix of discovery and reality, but it's also 
performative and decisive like they're not snapshots there's an intent to them there's a cinematic intent there's a th almost a theatrical intent even though they feel very kind of real which is which is you know it just creates this energy that's very unique to that sleeve yeah well i think that you know that again is is down to anton's sense of the visual i mean he was definitely you know looking through the camera and saying move here move a little bit this way you know to kind of create that it's almost um uh, in retrospect, thinking about it, it's almost Mount Rushmore-ish in its in its kind of uh, combination of, of faces. Well, I think any good photographer is also kind of a choreographer, or of course, I guess in Anton's case, Anton is a director yeah. as much as he's a photographer. So he's not just he you know he also has a an ability to structure a shot and structure a setup and to literally direct it as though he's directing a scene. And I mean, I do think in terms of the theatrical nature of it. And the, and the dress sense in particular, like if these guys had been in in jeans and T-shirts, that it would have just been a different thing altogether. Yeah, and also, it, you know, it, the clothing reflected um, the 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 uh, the environment. On you know, it wasn't a particularly warm day. You know, that you 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 couldn't have really survived a shooting without a certain amount of warm clothing. Well, that point is one that comes up quite often in interviews and uh, about the sleeve that they were they were. It, it said that Bono wanted the, the album to have more of a summery feel than previous releases or more of a warm feel. So they felt they needed to take off their jackets and, and be standing in the desert as though they were, you know, baking on, under the summer sun when in reality they were quite cold. And I actually think this this strange dichotomy gives the, the sleeve even more energy. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting... Uh, environment because at that hour in the morning um when we were shooting that the, the inner sleeve of the thing it was cold but it wasn't there was no wind or anything so it wasn't like a biting cold which you couldn't stand it was just simply yeah. cold uh in the same way when in a funny way when we went to morocco there was a heat but because there was very little wind in 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 in, in that uh location you could stand the heat and in the same way you could stand yeah. the cold in, yeah. in this time as well did they have a stylist at the time yes i think it was marion smith was the, was the stylist well shout out to marion because i think she did a really good job yeah she did and she 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 uh you know was part of the team you know whatever anyway any of us could help her get things done we we we, we did so i mean carrying the mirrors and tables so she could put uh use i mean she i also as far as you know hair makeup all that kind of thing she was looking yeah. after a little bits of that while she was doing it well that leads into this nice little piece of trivia about the mirror which is the mirror <laughs> that you were carrying across the desert and this mirror somewhat accidentally appears in the gatefold image. If you draw your eye to the bottom left-hand corner, you will see a little square object. This is the mirror that the band yeah. are using to check hair and costume. And how about a few words just on the mood of the of the shoot? I think we've talked about this before, that Anton is a... Uh, I got a very dry sense of humor, which which actually works extremely well in a shoot because he's he's trying to get the best out of them and almost push them into into certain things. But it's done with a certain amount of humor. Um, yeah, I think seeing footage of Anton at work, he has this ability to kind of disarm everybody and and bring levity to to the the environment, and that can be very helpful to relax people. I think. Yeah. You know, being photographed is a very vulnerable position to be in. And similarly to photograph people, there's a level of intimacy involved there that you really do need to have a kind of a lightness to it. Yeah, and it it it, it was um, it, it was in, in no sense a serious uh, um, 
time you know there was a lot of levity and a lot of humor and a lot of uh back uh, joking back and forth going on you know there were times when it got a bit stressful but we had so many places to visit and do so you had to take and balance the stress with the human qualities of what we're doing i mean at one point when we were traveling on one of the buses it was so cold in the evening as we were traveling that we stopped at a hardware store and um we bought some um electric heaters to plug in um, and, and ultimately, that burnt out the the uh, that system on the bus. Very Irish um, anecdote, that isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, we it wasn't the most pleasant. I mean, now you think of these tour buses with all sort of uh, you know toilets and 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 everything and yeah. bunk beds and things. This was a pretty straightforward bus with just with seats on it. You know. Yeah. I think this all feels like it feeds into the solemnity of. The experience too, which again feeds into this energy, this this kind of humble or respectful nature, um, and not it not being a grandiose operation, further enhances the the energy. I'm curious about the idea of the balance of creative power with Anton coming on board now in such a strong way. And I'm wondering, did, did Anton's presence in some ways challenge the idea of of that balance of power or creative power? I suppose in some ways he could be considered like a, a, a co-director or even sometimes a de facto art director. So I'm wondering, did it feel like a very natural organic collaboration with you naturally taking a back seat as you attend to do as a creative facilitator or was it difficult to adjust to that balance? No, I don't think so. I think there was a mutual respect. I mean, Anton, um, I was kind of... um totally focused on what he was doing but he was the man looking through the cameras when anton is on a roll when he's actually got something going well you don't want to break up that that uh, rapport he has with with the subject uh, with the band so you let anton go and you know damn well what you're going to get is going to be as powerful as anything that you would if you'd stand there and said oh do it this way i was more concerned with what are we using these for um do we have a balance of imagery do we do we do we have what we want from this session is have we got enough material to actually move forward without overshooting i imagine then that when you're actually out on a shoot that you're particularly focused on the technical aspects of making sure you have what you need for every eventual graphic design purpose yeah because i mean this is pre-photoshop or any other treatment so the 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 negative is what you're working with um and if you say wanted more sky in a negative uh that's was a very uh, difficult and expensive process to sort of recreate something to go above the thing. So you have to try as much as possible, look at the, because we would obviously shoot Polaroid and you'd look at the Polaroid and say, well, maybe we need a little bit of space here. Maybe we need, you know, this could potentially be a cover. We just need to do this with this. So that informs you as you're there. But when you actually see the physical pictures on the physical contact sheets, then your mind changes because you see what you're actually dealing with and you say, well, this is going to work if I do this with it. Well, that's a good point to talk about how much we take the current or you know the post-digital landscape for granted to a degree that things could be fixed tweaked altered so quickly and i think possibly at the detriment to the kind of sanctity of the craft of it all i mean even getting a getting a print from a negative involved a darkroom process which in itself was was a complex art form and how some of those process or processes are just lost now to the digital age. 
of course, to the benefit of convenience and speed. But hey, yeah, I think uh, you know when you, if I go back to the say the unforgettable fire, uh, I remember that Anton and I were due to deliver the artwork to uh, Island Records. Uh, on, a, on the morning after we were there. And I remember staying with Anton in his flat and he, literally he was in the dark room most of the night uh, coming out with putting a print down on the ground and saying, well, this is good, but we need to do that with it. So he worked for perfection on, on that thing. So he may have done 15 prints to find the, the one that really he felt strong about. I suspect somebody like Anton, who is essentially a master craftsperson, would have a very particular eye for detail. I couldn't, by the end of it, probably um, differentiate between some of them, but I knew he could. Um, and, and I think in later days, as he became more busy anyway, and just doing so much work, he began to work with uh, a printer that yeah. knew exactly what he was looking for in a print, so that the printer could sort of do a lot of the printing work for him. Well, I think what this whole conversation then is affirming yet again is that your role as a creative facilitator is to be as invisible as possible to observe to feedback to guide and not to dominate and it seems as though as a result there was never any creative power struggle between yourself and anton no because we you know anton and i would would um either on the shoot uh, between as the band were getting ready or had taking a break, we would talk about what was happening, what was going on. Uh, you know, as I say, I was very aware of what he was shooting on the Polaroid because we would always shoot two or three Polaroids before we actually started to shoot on film. So, you know, it wasn't like I was in the dark as to what was happening. I was also most, most oftentimes standing very close to Anton anyway. Um, yeah. And I suppose then many, in many regards, he made your job easier because he's giving you such good raw materials. Yeah, of course. I mean, that, that, that's. I mean, it's it's. You only overly art direct a session when you're when you're not sure that you're going to get what you want out of the session. One of the things that we see for the first time on Joshua Tree is alternatives, uh, mock-ups. You, you obviously had a few different ideas kind of in contention um, and it brings to mind the idea of the of the physical mock-up in the pre-digital age and you were presenting ideas in a, in a physical manner as mock-ups that you could hold as though it were a real vinyl sleeve. Yeah, uh, it was certainly, uh, as you can see from those mock-ups, and they were done basically very, very simply. It, it was a time as well when um, people, uh, you weren't using a computer to do mock-ups. So therefore, um, a lot of the mock-ups that were done were very basic, very simple. The, the Things like type, where the track listing would be, was just done more or less as a few lines, designed to show where, where the type would be, the credits, the titles, all the rest of it. And, and they could see those and look at them and sort of say, yeah, um, we like this. But as the computer became more and more omnipresent in in the design, you basically had to get closer and closer to a finished uh, product before you, you showed it. Well, this whole thing opens up an interesting idea in my mind, which is the idea of the of the kind of romanticism associated with the physical mock-up. I think nowadays, and for quite a long time, if people are primarily distributing their music digitally, or perhaps only distributing digitally, that the need to have a physical mock-up isn't there. Which to me is a shame, because I feel like sometimes, even if you are only presenting it digitally, to, to actually print it out and hold it as though it were a physical entity can help kind of galvanize the idea or the concept. And maybe then in other ways, when you're 
primarily presenting digitally. You don't have to worry about colours um, being realised on paper stock. You don't have to worry about how things are going to come out in the print. People are primarily viewing it on screens. But it just seems slightly sad to me that that physical thing is lost. Um, the one thing that was kind of maybe quite a bit different back as a as a designer in those days was that if you were working for a major label, there was generally speaking uh, what they called um, wet proofs. So you would, uh, if you were doing it for you two or whatever, you quite often get a set of proofs that they would make uh, with the, with the the printing uh, firm, and they would print off maybe a dozen of these sheets, which were progressive colours. So there'll be yellow, cyan, magenta, and black, and then a full set. So you could then look at these before, or everybody could look at these management record labels, everybody could see this was the last stage before printing, where you could look and balance the colours and see uh, where they work properly. Which, um, as a designer, was that moment when you, because you had done your artwork on a piece of flat board and you'd drawn it out and you did your overlays where the colours go, it was probably the first time you actually saw how those colours were going to work together. And then sometimes, for me, not necessarily on the YouTube projects, but on other projects, um, it was either a great surprise and it really worked, or it was a disaster and the, and the colour balance didn't work. Um, but in the case of you two, we're dealing with sort of primary colours to a large degree. We're, we're dealing with black and, and gold and things like that. So you have a pretty fair idea of how it's going to actually end up looking. I think it's really hard to imagine. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine this sleeve as anything other than the black and gold that it became. But your early mock-ups show that you were experimenting with some different colours. There's a green colour, which I actually would say is rather complementary to the Unforgettable Fire's uh, burgundy colour. But you, I think I think the cinematic quality of the black, like this, the cinema border effect, very quickly solidified the black. But the gold seemed to have always been there in some degree. And I think gold has this really unique property of being both delicate and heavy at the same time. And I don't know if that's just its kind of regal nature. But for me, when I was doing research for this and just looking at Joshua Tree images online and then pulling out the actual record, and this is actually a good example from what I was just saying about physical mock-ups versus digital, seeing the gold printed just brings a far greater sense of something to my mind when I hold that sleeve than it would do if I view it digitally because the gold obviously when it's printed it, it does ha have this effect of almost lifting the image off the page it kind of floats everything I think keeping in mind the fact that there's also an aspect of of, of mining and gold mines in the images and 
there's a song called Red Hill Mining Town on the record, for example, that that kind of also creates something else, whether intended or not. Yeah, it, it, it was in the end very crucial to the that cover working. If they were, if those gold bands uh, top and bottom of the picture weren't there, it really would the picture would almost blend into the background, um, and that's not really what I wanted to do. Um, and also then you have to sort of think about, you know, how the typeface would work if your type, if you printed a gold substitute, in other words, in order to make, there is a sort of a, a four color gold that you can occasionally use on, on packaging and projects. If you print a four color, a color on top of a background, which is four colors, it's, it's quite a bit different. And I think as far as I can remember on the album, we had a solid black, a solid black, maybe two blacks or whatever down to get the depth of, of color. Then the the uh, picture itself, um, which is a, which is probably a CMYK with the, with the gold overprint. So you're talking about a five color sleeve, essentially. And on your point that sometimes you don't really know what you're going to get until you see it in the printing process, did you ever turn an album back to be redone did you ever send a sleeve back because the colors weren't right or the register was wrong or something uh not uh in in the u2 context because a we were nearly always at a production deadline so the time wasn't there to do that i think i've returned them in a couple of cases uh where i really felt uh it wasn't happening now you probably didn't get the opportunity to see a second pre-press proof but you did get the opportunity to say well this green or this red where they balanced against each other um needs to be adjusted in terms of color so um i mean and 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 as you probably know the system in those days was pantone so you chose colors from pantone swatch book but you were printing in cmyk which is very different from pantone so uh you're trying to make a judgment call on color based on a solid color uh, reference, then you're going to a four-color process. So eventually, um, four-color process books in Pantone themselves did a, a swatch that showed you the actual color in as a solid, and then they showed you a four-color process of it. And you, you very nearly always adjusted because it wasn't the same. Let's talk typefaces. Okay. I think uh, I, sh- I, 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 I'm trying to remember back what typeface I chose that I think it might have been um, a Gaudi typeface. Um, it was certainly a a classic uh, serif font that we experimented with. And funnily enough, I was looking uh, before we talked at the tour program, which is a uh, I'm, I'm you know very pleased with what that turned out. And I used a totally different font for the tour program. It has the same effect because it's spaced out across the full width of the of the image, but it's just a, a different font. So I did try. I got it uh, typeset in in three or four different variations of the font to see which one looked the best. The tour programs are particularly beautiful as a accessory to the sleeve. I don't think we have the time really to go exploring those right now not to dis- dismiss them but we'll stick to the we'll stick to the sleeve for now so going back to the cover text i first of all really like that it reads the joshua tree u2 rather than the other way around and then it because of the minimalist space on the sleeve that the text has a kind of a weight to it because it's filling up a part a portion of that space but also it's almost invisible because you have this spaced out text almost forming a pattern. I actually get the impression of it being like a strip of film there, like a film, like the text is a film sprocket. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that you say that, but uh, I don't rec- ever recall thinking of it as a sprocket. I just uh, saw it as a way of putting the title on the album cover that is there and very visible, but in no ways does it interfere with the picture, because I think the picture is the, is the, the key element of that whole cover. The typography on the rear is laid out central. I'm kind of getting a feeling of a film poster almost. Or or, uh, or a credit sequence of a film at the end of the as the credits roll at the end, which was which was kind of intentional to have it like that. Another aspect of the sleeve, in terms of pure design or art direction, is the Joshua Tree itself represented on the labels as a silhouette, as a stark gold symbol uh, or even icon in a way and I was particularly struck by how this icon loomed large in on the 2017 anniversary tour that that piece of iconography was still so strong and so so relevant to the point where I feel like if you removed all traces of you 2 of the band and just had the tree I'm sure it would still have resonance and be identifiable for what it is for Anton to have found that lone tree and to have then seen the power in in isolating it in the design process is very commendable. And when you think about the use of iconography and symbols in the future of U2's design output, whether it be the space baby on Octung or the suitcase on all that you can't leave behind, I think it was... Um, the first of its kind in some ways for for how you two would expand on these uh, these icons and concepts. Uh, well, quite obviously, the uh, tree that Anton had found and the main the main focal part of the visual shot in the vel- in the, in that particular location, it was such an iconic. Uh, I mean, I remember sitting down with that afterwards and um, taking the print that Anton had sent me and then photocopying it and then redrawing it as a silhouette so that it could be used, as you can see on the labels and um, in other in other parts of the campaign. At what point did the discussion about it becoming an element for what at that point was a very primitive stage setup for the you know a band who will become known for their super elaborate stage setups? Yeah, it was probably. Uh, it's obviously its first usage was mainly in the labels um, for the album, um, and then uh, it was decided uh, where my skill crosses over that it would become the scrims at the side of the stage. Uh, and in those days, uh, there was no monitors or TV or any of that uh, screens going behind. There's simply each side of the stage, there was a massive scrim which had the silhouette of the tree on it on, on each side. Was Willie Williams working with the band at this point? I think Willie was part of the, of the setup at, at that point as well, yeah. Well, it's such an effective way to tie in not only the artwork and the design direction for the sleeve and the campaign in general, but also... Yeah. You know, it kind of unites the audience and band underneath the Joshua tree, you know, like in the absence of actually constructing a fake tree, which I think would have been, you know, too theatrical and possibly cheap looking. Yeah. Having those silhouettes left and right of stage, it just has this effect of kind of uniting everyone under this this image, this icon. Yeah, and I think in a much more elaborate sense, uh, when they went out and did the Josh tree again with Anton's new footage, the tree was still primal to that whole stage setting, you know. But I think the fact that it grew from that very, very simplistic 
uh, usage to the kind of thing that it became uh, as an icon was part of its journey and progress. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but I also really like how the tree became a kind of a motif for them to deconstruct on Octum Baby. I think even Bono says that Octum Baby is the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua tree. So it's such a nice... Yes. It's such a nice motif to have to work from. Yeah, and the fact that it became a point of pilgrimage for so many fans afterwards is <laughs> equally strange, you know? Yeah, yeah. And will probably become even more, more. you know, it's been it's obviously been chopped down. It was that terrible? terrible? I don't think it was chopped down. I think, it, I think from what I gather from talking to somebody about it, mm-hmm. it had actually, it was sing, the single tree had fallen down, got gone, the, the, the okay. base had, had rotted and the whole thing had fallen over. I don't think yeah. any, anybody actually physically went. I'm sure they took, pieces I, of it. Yeah, I think that's what actually it was people were trying to bring bits of it home and it's, but it's yeah. still the mo- it's still there rem- remnants are, are still a mo- like a monument and a, and a, a shrine almost. And I think that that'll be underlined again when fans descend on Las Vegas and will be, you know, a few hours away from from this location to to visit it. Um just watch out for snakes. Rattlesnakes, uh, yeah. Rattlesnakes. It's a problem. It, it's not obviously in use anywhere, but there was a logo created around this time, which was the U2 text in the circular, very simple kind of oval, um, almost, you know, it's almost, not, not, not corporate, but it's a nice minimalist logo. Was that used anywhere? Uh, it was used uh, on merchandising. There was actually a, a version of that, um, which became very, very prevalent in a lot of the of the marketing uh, merchandising area, which was a kind of you that same font as far as I can allow to think about it, but with a, a with wings on it, almost like a sort of um, motorcycle um, logo, um, and that was used. You see that on the posters and things that were printed around that time. I really like that logo. I think it's perhaps of its time, but in other ways, it's got a kind of classicism to it as well. And in some ways, I'm surprised it hasn't made an appearance in some way again. It became, it, it was very much used by the, the merchandising company as a brand symbol. They they began to use it on a lot of different material and things like that. In, in a sense, it was a slight homage to Larry's interest in motorcycles and things like that. And I went back and looked at some old logos of airline and, and motorcycle logos, and, and I just came up with that that layout. And I thought it was, again, simplistic but effective. Yes, and I think that we've spoken about this before, that YouTube never really had a definitive logo that carried through their work. And this logo is probably the closest thing to that. Um, there's a desire, obviously, to keep reinventing the logo. So there was different sleeves for the different formats on the Joshua Tree. You had the 12-inch record, you had the CD, which was becoming more and more popular. I think that even at this point, it was probably overtaking CDs. And then you had the cassette tape, each with their own different take on the cover sleeve. What was your thinking behind that? Well, I think it was, um, looking back, a slightly frivolous idea on my behalf. Um, I had thought about people that I really liked, designers like Barney Bubbles, who had um, quite often um, used different versions of the artwork in the different formats. I mean, later on, marketing kind of took over and everything became the same, every single 
time you saw the cover, it was exactly the same. I think the idea of it being uh, a little bit different was appealing to the band as, 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 as much as everybody else, that it was going to be something that would make sense. I mean, I think the cassette folds out from the, the, the actual picture, stretches over a certain number of the folds in the cassette. Well, I don't think it was a frivolous pr- pursuit because you were, first of all, just exploring, as you say, the kind of fun fun side to it and the idea that all these covers could coexist. And I think you, in some ways, probably just fell foul to the fact that vinyl was very quickly being replaced by CD and the CD version became the de facto standard version, which is diminished if the vinyl isn't there as well. But I do think it is an interesting concept from a design point of view because you're talking about a square portrait size, you know, a, a, a smaller surface. There's every reason to explore the design possibilities of each format. Yeah, when, when, once the vinyl began to fade away, and also the, you know, both Anton and I felt um, the the record company, the ver- the version, the first version of the CD um uh, certainly the reissue version of the CD before it became an actual reissue project just was a fourfold cover, which and the inside was just how to clean your CD and, and, and how to care for your CD. It was, it was none of the information. None, and we just felt that it, it, it lost an awful lot of what it really needed in the overall in the overall project. So we, we wanted to, to go back and we convinced the band that it should be reissued with all, uh, lyrics and, and, and all the things that were missing from it. So making a bit more. And that, I mean, even today now with the, with the, with vinyl coming back in, more and more CDs are just basic, uh, for front cover track information and credits and nothing else. There's no further exploration. And that's partly a cost factor, but you know, there's no further explanation of the idea. And yeah, for a project with so much content or rather so many different facets to its visual presence it seems a shame to not be able to fully explore them and and draw upon all the various images sourced yeah i i think it's also interesting worth 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 saying that with with when when this the one of the early reissues we had the joshua tree um cover and then there was versions of the same format with different pictures and and but none of the other pictures really captures the same power as the one that was used now maybe that's because it that that became the cover and therefore it became you know itself slightly iconic but i think that you know we made as much as we could of i mean i'm 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 as i said as i just said a few minutes ago i'm very proud of the tour program because it was it broke a lot of barriers it was considered to be the, one of the better tour programs that was ever produced at that stage because it is a photo book of anton's material you know throughout the whole thing to draw yet another observation on the continuation from The Unforgettable Fire and the fact that the record sleeves act as siblings or or as a, as, a, as a pair, as a unit, that it's clear from the process that that wasn't the initial intention. From your early mock-ups, you can see that the the form that it ultimately took was came via a process of trial and error. And, and Well, I think that... Um... I mean, I find that immensely satisfying just from from a narrative point of view that it wasn't the intention that it be, it just became what it needed to become like that Joshua Tree sleeve had to happen that way not because of the design of the unforgettable fire but that their symbiotic relationship formed organically almost I mean I suppose that also taps into the idea of enigma 
and the mystery of these covers and the unexplainable side of these covers. Yes, it, it, there's, definitely, there's definitely a correlation. And that's probably more um, my sensibility than any direction from either Anton or the band. It's just simply that, that, that when I started to lay it out and look at it, I said, yeah, well, obviously this this is a link forward from, from, from that. So I wonder then, is gold the thing that begins this lineage, begins this thread through the DNA? But somehow along the way, uh, gold became a colour that we, we used quite a lot in the YouTube process uh, on T-shirts and things like that. I mean, I remember I'd, I'd been, this is an off, off-side thing, but I mean, at one point speaking to a printer who was doing merchandising for the tour, and he said, you know, we've got every pot and tin of gold ink in America bought up to do these T-shirts because we've used so much gold throughout the entire campaign. Well, you're creating a gold rush. Look, I mean, it's just this thing that I find, again, really satisfying. And I think it's throughout the catalogue that, you know, the sleeves kind of occur in trilogies-ish. Um, but you, but the, the, the sleeves, whilst they stand alone, they also have this satisfying relationship to the other sleeves. So Joshua Tree, for example... Is such a standalone iconic cover, but it's also a partner to another cover, and they have a relationship with each which, which, with each other, much in the same way that you know, Boy and War are are speaking to each other. It must be. I just find it immensely a satisfying thing. And in a way, as much as the Octong baby sleeve feels like an appropriate follow-up and obviously it's reflecting the sound and and the, and the tapestry of everything going on it's kind of a shame that we didn't get to see the you know the third in the trilogy of these this style of sleeve yeah i th- i think there was a um a feeling that um rattle and hum might have gone that direction well that's a good place to introduce rattle and hum and following on from the success of joshua tree and the ensuing tour, and I guess quest to conquer America to a degree, was the Rattle and Hum film, directed by another regular collaborator, Phil Juanu. So you were not responsible for the design work on the Rattle and Hum campaign. I assume that Paramount Pictures probably had a strong say in that process, but you were somewhat involved. Can you talk a bit about that process and how you were involved on the periphery um well obviously rattle and hum was a project that they did with uh, phil joano as director and paramount pictures as their production uh, facility uh so uh paul had asked me would i go with him to los angeles um so i drove through those iconic gates with paul into paramount pictures um had a very strange experience where I was introduced to their marketing and design team, who then gave me a presentation, which was essentially feeding back my own work to me in the context of what the film might be. Um, and there was a very strong inkling at that point that the, the, the photograph or the picture of a Bono holding the spotlight on edge playing the guitar um, could possibly be what we wanted for the, for the cover. So, um, for some reason, because I was in Los Angeles for a certain period of time, um, I was given access to Steven Spielberg's private editing suite. Um, and I sent, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours going through the footage from the uh, 
cameras that were used for the for the presentation on the screens to find this particular frame that worked as a cover and i think i managed to after about three days and hours and hours of footage i came back and said look we aren't going to get it it's just not right because what they what a lot of people do and this even happens in design people sort of say do you remember the scene in such a thing that would make a great cover but what they're thinking of is a moving sequence it's not a still so when we froze a particular frame, it just had none of the da- dynamic we were looking for. So at the end of it, I said, look, we're really going to have to reshoot this. And Anton did so. He shot it again in a warehouse in, 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 in Los Angeles. So I guess effectively you were somewhat of a consultant on that one. Yeah, I knew at that point that their deal was that um, Paramount would handle it with their uh, with the company called, I think it's DZN, who, who um, did a lot of Paramount's posters and pictures and things like that. But they were very... Um, communicative to me they would let me know what they were doing and where, where they were going with it you know? and I think in many ways Rattle and Home feels like a Steve Averill cover which is testament to the kind of structure that you had established or the visual language that, that you were seeding for Paramount's team to to work with yeah, it's it's again as I say, it was it was kind of take going back to the war and that kind of some of the stuff we did on T-shirts, that kind of bold blocky lettering you know, that that they used was very effective. I think we could say that there was a different set of politics involved on this one. Having gone through the discussions we've had about about Paul and the band having creative control, that obviously this wasn't necessarily a record label decision. It was more outside of that to do with Paramount, and yet still out of respect, Paul is inviting you along for. For advice, you know, and I also uh, said to Paul, "Look, there's really no point in me hanging around because I'm just sitting in a hotel room or, or in the studio, and I don't have the facilities here to to design it or to do it. So there's no point in me being here. Let them communicate with me, you know, if needed afterwards yeah. or in whatever way they, they could." So that's when I, I returned home, and uh, you know, I think what they did was good, and it, it it didn't fall way outside of the parameters of what we were doing anyway. And the funny thing was, um, afterwards. Um, I got a call from one of the guys in the design company to say, um, you know, how many people do normally have working on a project like this? And they said, well, there's just me and my, and, my, uh, and my colleague, Sean McGrath. They couldn't believe that. They had about 20 people work, working all the time to try and get there. And they said, how you know, they just couldn't figure out how we got through so much work. But we, because we knew the band so well and what would work for them, what wouldn't work for them, we were cutting a lot of the, the fat out of, of that kind of working situation. Yeah, that's interesting. There may be a clue in that as to, again, the longevity of everything, whether it's your your existence in the graphic design world and your relationship with you too, that even at the height of the requirements from you between yourself, Sean McGrath, and one or two other people, you know, you're always a small team, always keeping it very intimate and very personal. So one last thing I want to get your 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 take on is just when the album came out and was so successful it was number 1 in the UK, US, you know, they won album of the year at the Grammy Awards. They're topping polls. It's their best-selling album. I think it's one of their only U, uh, U.S. number one singles. So obviously things really exploded. They really, um, they really began to to pop. No pun intended. Um, do you do? How did you feel around the time these things started to 
elevate, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. I, I, I think that we were all very excited by what was happening. Um, uh, again, you know, the strange situation whereby our, the vinyl was our lead product and within a very short space of time, the vinyl had almost been vanished from, from the scene. It was being killed by, by the record labels in favor of the, the CD where they felt they probably make more profit from, from what they were doing on the CD. Um, so it was almost the last throw of the dice for, for the vinyl as, as, the, the lead part. From then on, we had to concentrate a lot on on the CD aspect of the design. And how about seeing things like the Streets video on MTV or Slavin Pound when I'm looking for the videos? Yeah, no, I think I remember seeing it. Um, I think I, I got shown it in the U2 office before it was actually released. Um, and it was quite funny because I, I was kind of laughing at seeing Anton sort of being told to move on by a policeman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I suppose there must have been a sense, though, of just like you must have had a sense of what you know. Wow, like this is this is really cooking now. Yeah, they they were really taken off. I mean, this is where the name suddenly becomes you know iconic in in a sense that you know this is who you two are, um, which maybe was not defined prior to this album. I mean, this must have given you some sense of pride or satisfaction. Uh, well, yeah, I did, but I mean, I was never. Um, overly precious about the name i mean i just it was an answer to a to a question uh i don't know if they've been called if they were still called the hype or whatever would would it how i mean how can you actually go back and 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 say the name made a huge difference i think it made a difference but whether they would have been uh as um successful under another name is very very hard to, to to debate but it's an interesting debate because you just don't know you know yes that that is very true I mean, I'm going to say no. I think that if they'd if they'd remained the hype, that just it wouldn't have happened the same way. Maybe I think U2 is the vehicle for their success. Um, did you go and see them on this tour? Certainly, tour in Dublin. Uh, I'm not sure whether I went out to the states to see it. Um, probably as I was a working. Uh, with a working design team, it depended a lot on what work situation we were in and you just couldn't disappear for a jolly across there. Yeah, and in my mind, that just kind of affirms the idea that for you, you were still kind of dedicated to your work, that it was just business as usual. Like I'm sure you handed in the Joshua Tree and then the next day you're 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 just back in the offices and you know working on whatever is happening. You you weren't U 2s personal designer. Yeah, things need to be done and, and and the company needs to be run. You know, so you know, and we would have spent an, uh, a lot. Of, well, I would have spent a lot of time because at that point it was simply I was working for a company. Uh, yeah, I was working for the creative department uh, as as an art director in there. So there would have been um, a whole list of jobs that, that needed to be done. So that, when that job was done, it was finished, and, and and you moved on to the next job. So now I wonder, and I ask, is the Joshua Tree your masterpiece? <laughs> is that my masterpiece? Uh, well, it was uh, for many reasons. It was. Um, uh, an enjoyable experience and a uh, important piece of design work that, that that I'd done, because as I say, um, at that point I was working one hundred percent on my own. Um, so there was a lot of work 
put into it to, to achieve it, you know, to get everything done and get everything out there. So from that point of view, it's very, very satisfying to, to, to have seen it all go from uh, being at the shoot, the initial concepts right through to the finished product. And the, f- the finished product, I still think, is very powerful today. It's, it's Even though it's been reissued now several times in, in different uh, iterations, I think that the, the original, the black with the black and white image is the most powerful of them all. Well, if you ever needed a good example of just how modest my father is when you ask him, is he proud of an era-defining, iconic, timeless, classic piece of work, that he talks about being proud of the volume of work that was involved and tends to sidestep the idea of pride. The man has no ego. The man is built on modesty. So, owing to the expansive nature of the Joshua Tree, I'm going to do something a bit different next week, and I'm going to post the conversation between my father and Mark Coleman from 2017, where they speak in such wonderful, intimate detail about the experience of being on that trip to the desert in 1986. I think it just feeds into this idea that the untold and in some ways super interesting part of the story is the personal stories. Finally, we have some news on a very special release we are preparing based on the unseen photographs from Steve's trip to the desert, which he speaks about in this very podcast. www.stephenaverill.com forward slash U2Y. You can sign up to the mailing list there for exclusive news and updates, as well as following along on Instagram forward slash Stephen Averill Design. Thank you to Nadine, to Bono, Edge, Larry and Adam and to the good folk at Universal Music. This has been U2Y Chapter 6, The Joshua Tree. After our conversation with Steve and Mark, we chop down The Joshua Tree and talk all things Octoon Baby. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.